Welcome to another edition of the official Jets podcast, the draft podcast presented by Pepsi. We're here in the Bet MGM studio with Double Trouble, Phil Savage, Rex Hogan, our first two guests to ever record in the Bet MGM studio. Yeah, but unfortunately, they weren't at the desk with us across the way in the casual setting here, but we got it done. Uh, true professionals, great veterans, and Joe Douglas, we've said it multiple times here on the official podcast of the team. He's assembled a quality staff, and two, these are two guys that he relies on big time. Very much so. Rex Hogan, the assistant GM to Joe Douglas. Phil Savage, what, the basically senior trust advisor? Senior personnel advisor. Senior personnel advisor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he trusts Joe <laughs> Douglas, and Joe Douglas trusts him, you know. Uh, but, yeah, they were both great. And right now, as we record this, some final meetings before the draft actually takes place. That's what's going on behind closed doors. Setting the big board, breaking up clusters, and they'll talk about this, but it's just Interesting to hear them talk about what goes on compared to what I think maybe misconceptions are about what goes on. Would you say that's a fair assessment on? Well, what would you what would you say are the most significant misconceptions? I don't know. Maybe misconception was a bit of a strong word, but I would say I think I said this to Phil. A lot of fans and a lot of people say my team needs to come out with this position in one of these two rounds. Or else it's, you know, or else everything is going down the deep end. But that's not the way that personnel or NFL personnel view it. Well, I don't know if you would agree with this, but the thing that I have really keyed in on here as we've gotten closer to the draft is a lot of people look at the draft uh, from a 40,000 foot view and they assign numbers for every prospect one two three four five it all depends how you view the prospects yourself for your organization aligning with your systems too because the scouts have to grade each prospect but then you have to get intel information from the coaching staff because there are certain traits they're looking for in these prospects so i think a lot of people out there think in terms of the draft is you take the most talented player available no matter who it is well not necessarily yeah. if that makes sense it's yeah, not, yeah. not just based on talent you have to draft well but then you have to develop so there you're going to have difference of opinions in there because you have so many people floating out opinions the way i view a player is going to be different than the way you view a player but with that being said there has to be consensus ultimately when Joe turns that card in that this is the right player for the New York Jets and the right player for the New York Jets not might not be the right player for somebody else right I think that there's almost three chapters chapter one the pre-draft process gathering your information chapter two is the draft and then chapter three which a lot of people I think just overlook it is the development of those players and chapter three doesn't come until training camp and for the rest of their first couple of years in the NFL. Even with the 2020 draft class. Right. And the uh, early reviews are very favorable. Uh, and look at what Makai Becton uh, did and, uh, and Denzel Mims and so on. But those guys, it's not the period at the end of the sentence. I think sometimes we look at the draft in terms of, oh, this is the finished product. This is the ceiling. No, no. You are taking a talent and then you're going to mold 
that talent into what you want him to be. And there are certain traits the Jets are looking at for every position. Right. Very well said. And we don't know what those traits are, partly because of the new schemes. It would be easier to figure out, okay, the Jets' defense looks like this, the Jets' offense looks like this. We don't know the answer to those questions yet. We'll probably get a sense of it maybe after the draft, but you know, let's hear from Phil Savage and Rex Hogan on what's, going been, or on what's been going on the past couple months and now the past couple days leading up to the draft. All right, Phil, so when we're recording this, we're just over a week out from the draft, but... What goes on between now, April 20th, and the first night of the draft on that side of the building and internally among yourself and Joe Douglas and everyone? Well, hopefully we're putting the finishing touches on basically 11 months worth of work in terms of, you know, some final reports, some, some last checkups on players from a personality standpoint, uh, just trying to fill in any final blanks on each pers- perspective player that could become a New York Jet. And I'm not talking, of course, about the top players in this draft. I'm talking about all the guys down in day two, day three, and then ultimately the undrafted free agents. So a lot of finishing touches and then a lot of internal conversations in terms of, okay, you know, are we sure this is these are the players that we have lined up this way. Are we sure this is the way we want it going into the, to the first night of the draft? And, of course, one of the beautiful things about the fact that it's spread over three days is now you get a chance to have a game plan, but then adjust and reset that game plan between day one and day two, and then obviously uh, day two and day three. And that was something that really has changed here over the last decade or so. Yeah, so many things to get to here with you, Phil. But what happens after the first night of the draft, after round one? Because a lot of fans, the anticipation is so great for number two and number 23, but you have eight selections after round one, five in the first three rounds. So uh, what happens with the board, and how, are the, how do those discussions go after nights one and two? Well, I think a couple things happen. Number one, of course, you, you, you plug in the, the two or three players that you, you got a chance to select on night one, and then you forecast, okay, with, in taking those players, how does it impact the, the ratings that we have at, at the other positions where we still may have a need? Uh, do we reorder some things? Uh, are we completely depleted at a position that we were hopeful that there were going to be more prospects available in the second or third round or maybe even the fourth or fifth round? And do we need to make a move up? Or are, there, are the players that we like plentiful? And now, hey, let's decide to go ahead and move down. And also, do you start building some assets for a future draft in terms of would we be willing to trade uh, some of these selections that are in the later part of the draft where we may feel like we're full in terms of our roster makeup. There's really not a lot of room left in the end in terms of adding a, a sixth or seventh rounder, so let's spin that pick off for a future pick. So those are definitely a couple of the things that, that you look at in terms of assessing what you just did and how it might impact the ratings that you have for day two and day three. Can you take us through, generally speaking, how the board gets compiled? Like, when does that start, and how does the initial layout go compared to where you're at now, where maybe you're just putting some last-minute touches on it? 
You know, I think for each individual scout, it really starts with the first player that they grade uh, for the previous fall, you know, usually during training camp. This year, of course, we were not allowed to go to college practices, but nevertheless, for the individual scout, I think it starts the very, with the very first player that you grade. For the organization and, and the team board, which is the most important thing here that we're talking about, it really starts in December when we have our first set of preliminary draft meetings. Then in February, where all the information is brought to the table uh, and it's really laid out in terms of, you know, what do we think about the player on the field, off the field, character-wise, ability-wise, uh, his, his internal intangibles, his external character, his on-field uh, performance or production. How do all those things pull together and where would we rank this player? And I think that's one thing that fans don't realize. Yes, we have a draft board with all the different positions listed and the players ranked beneath their different uh, respective position, but we also rank the players uh, vertically, one through whatever number it ends up being. Typically, it used to be 150 players. I think nowadays you could really rank the top 120 on a given board and you would be able to get through a 250 selection draft and, and not run out of names, believe it or not. So uh, ultimately that February meeting, then you fast forward to April where the coaches have some input. They've done their evaluations. You've also been out to the schools and done some pro day work, gotten some official measurables in terms of height, weight, speed, jumping ability, explosive numbers. And then you have a chance to really uh, do one more once over and put the board up and also rank the players vertically. And I think ultimately uh, those decisions that are made, you know, a couple weeks ahead of the draft, a week ahead of the draft, and maybe, just maybe, a few days before the draft, you want to have all those really hard discussions at that point so that when you get on the clock, you've already decided, you know, was it Smith or Jones or Thompson? And what order did we put them in two weeks ago? What order were they in 48 hours ago? And now here we are on draft night and Smith and Jones are still there. Thompson's been picked and we decided two weeks ago that Smith was the better option for us. And really that's how it works. I mean, we try to simplify a very complicated situation that is impacted by a lot of different variables. I have a two-parter for you. You are the senior personnel advisor for Joe Douglas. So you provide insight on player personnel's philosophy. What would you say about the Jets philosophy at its core? And also, how did you see that philosophy come to life during free agency? Yeah, I would say, you know, just as a general rule, we want to try to identify and acquire big, fast, physical, tough, and smart players. And, you know, again, it's a situation where there's so many different styles of, of offense and defense out there in the college game and then in the NFL. But what we're trying to do is identify the players that are going to best fit our systems on offense, defense, special teams. But even beyond that, how are they going to fit in the locker room? How coachable is this player? Uh, you know, how, how is he going to be able to uh, help other younger players uh, that are on our roster and that really is a, a piece of free agency that was important to us because when you make a coaching change and you have a new staff coming in 
Coach Robert Sala and his staff come in with a different, uh, different requirements, different skill sets uh, at different positions, then we're trying to find not only the best players that, that have those different characteristics, but also the ones that can have a positive influence and show our other younger prospects what it takes to be a professional football player and to do it successfully. How would you describe the relationship between scouts and coaches? EA asked you about the Joe Douglas philosophy. Then Robert Sala comes in with the organization, hires a coaching staff, and it seems like what Robert Sala believes in is also what Joe Douglas believes in. But then you have to scout for a little bit something different, at least. So I'm just curious how you would describe the relationship between the coaching staff and the scouts. Yeah, I would say that uh, anytime you're going through a, a transition between uh, coaching staffs, uh, there's going to be a bit of a learning curve. And I know in our most recent draft meetings, I felt like I learned something with every position group that we covered uh, from Coach Sala's assistant coaches and coordinators who were speaking in the meeting. And so uh, with that said, we always talk about and everyone focuses on the head coach and general manager relationship, but it really goes uh, far beyond that in terms of that stair step of coordinators and directors, assistant coaches that are position coaches and area scouts or uh, regional scouts and so you know everyone's got to be in alignment all the way through from top to bottom and I think that's something that gets lost sometimes when we're talking about hey the GM and the head coach are on the same page and you have to start with that but it's also very important all the way through both sides of the building so to speak between coaching and scouting where there's a respect level and there's also uh, a give-and-take level of uh, communication between the coaches and the scouting staff and if you get that that really is kind of the secret sauce in terms of being able to draft successfully develop players in a successful manner and if you do those two things ultimately you're going to win what was the importance of the pro days this year compared to maybe in past years with no combine you got to go back a ways without a combine for the national football league uh, in, in terms of that data collection, actually having the first and last opportunity, unless it was the senior ball, right, to get that data and then it, check it to what the film actually showed your eyes. Yeah, Eric, outside of uh, the live games we were able to attend during the fall and then the, the week of the Reese's Senior Bowl and that game, uh, the pro day, uh, at these respective schools was really the only opportunity that you had outside of those previous chances to see a player in person and see him on the field not really even playing football but going through those physical tests but then after the workout having an opportunity to talk to the player and for some of the prospects particularly underclassmen who were not eligible for the Reese's Senior Bowl, it is very important that we have that access to be able to shake hands with them, look them, look them in the eye, maybe address a couple things that might be in their background that you want to talk about. So I would say the Pro Days definitely took a, a, a big step in terms of uh, importance this year with no combine. Essentially, 
we had a combine over about a six or eight week period mm -hmm. and it was just done on an individual daily basis and then it was our job to try to pull all that information together and make it seem as if it was the combine where you could compare you know all the corners or all the wide receivers within a given day we had to do that really over about a six or eight week period of time phil you have such unique perspective and you were mentioning I don't know if a disconnect is the right word between fans and maybe what actually goes on behind closed doors in every NFL organization. But, you know, I think a common, a common, I don't know about saying, but fans going into a draft say, you know, my team needs to draft this position in the draft and they need to do it early, et cetera. But can you take us into the thinking of what actually happens when, you know, you're a couple picks away and then you're actually on the clock and what goes through the selection process, even though, to your point, a lot of the hard work is done in this time of the year before the draft actually happens? Yeah, you know, there's those, those uh, two different philosophies. Take the best player available yeah. versus uh, position of need. And I think, in all honesty, from December to February to the April meetings, of course, if you have a need and players are within a certain category or a certain level of your draft board, you're going to push up the player that is at a position that you really need the most. And so uh, hopefully by the time you actually get to draft night, that conversation is already had and, it, and there's some logic in terms of uh, why you're taking the player that you chose. The other thing I would say as well is you never know in a given year which position is going to have the most depth. There's certain positions that have no depth, and then there's other positions that might have multiple prospects that you like. So that's where you have to make that value judgment of, okay, we only have one uh, offensive guard left. Let's take him here because there are plenty of linebackers later. Or, hey, you know, there's only one tight end we like. Let's take him here because, hey, there's plenty of cornerbacks that are going to be available later in the draft. It's sort of just a random uh, example. And so that's really, I, I, I've always termed it, you know, the art of scouting is going out and, and seeing the prospects and trying to figure out, okay, how does he really fit with, with our particular club and in our particular systems? But then the art of the draft is something that's at a whole different level. It's one thing about it's one thing to line the players up and put them on a draft board. It's another to massage and manage that list and that draft board to get the players that you want and that you ultimately need to complete your your roster and, and make it a successful team. You were a GM yourself. You're a longtime scout. What are the nerves like for you, or the emotions draft weekend? Is it like? It's Christmas Day. I can't wait to get under the tree. What, what actually is going on internally for you? I got to imagine there's a lot of adrenaline, even though you put a lot of work into this and you guys are ready to go. Yeah, I would say there's definitely anticipation. I mean, you know, as it sits right now, we know we're going to get two really good players on the first day of the draft. Now, what what happened? Do we move up? Do we move down? I mean, who knows what's really going to happen? But the anticipation of, of, of learning who it is that you're actually going to be adding to the team and, you know, the fingers crossed, the prayers that are said <laughs> about hoping that certain players might get to a point where maybe you have to move up a few spots to get them or maybe they just fall 
you know, in your lap, or maybe there's so many players left, then you have that option of trying to trade back, knowing that you're still going to get a player that you like. But I think that, you know, the, the best drafters uh, are the ones that have made a lot of their determinations and a lot of their decisions ahead of the game. It's almost like you've rehearsed it so much in practice that when you get to the game, the game is easy. And uh, through my experience over the years, I would say that when we were really well prepared and we had had some of those really difficult conversations and difficult choices where, you know, when you're going through these meetings, there's 400 players that you can choose from. Ultimately, when you're on the clock, you're probably down to about two or three, maybe four or five players as you work into the draft that you want to take. And, you know, with that being said, I, I think the best drafters are those that really have a calm demeanor and, you know, they're, they're drafting players like a good play caller in terms of, okay, we're, we're doing this to set this up for later. Uh, and I think the best drafters have a knack of knowing, okay, if we do this here, these are the ram this is the ramification for us in the second round, the third round, the fourth round, and beyond. And to me, the ones that can kind of see beyond the moment are the ones that are, at the be at, 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 are the best at doing that. And to me, last year, with some of the moves that Joe made, you know, I think he, he's been around enough success in the draft room to know what it looks like, and he's got some, some instinct to it as well. And uh, playing the draft board, that's, that's the fun part of the draft weekend. You mentioned Joe. Last year, his first draft, a very unique one, hopefully the only virtual one that he'll see. And you know, from your perspective, EA and I spoke to Dan Spioski the other week, and he was talking about the benefit of being in person. And so I'm curious, on draft night for you, Phil, you know, what is the benefit that you think as an organization that everyone will be in person as opposed to last year, which was virtual? Well, I would say, you know, everyone across the league and, you know, hopefully, you know, our staff. I mean, we, we were able to, to work through and adapt and adjust to all these changes that have happened in the last year. But uh, there's no doubt there's a, a bit more of a comfort level, if you will, when you have your people uh, around you to, you know, say, to, to give you some support or give you that wink or the thumbs up or, hey, don't do that. <laughs> you know, sometimes the best move you make are the ones that you don't make. And so I think having your, 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 your staff around you and in the same room, there's definitely some nuance in terms of communication that can take place that, you know, you can't get through a, through a Zoom or a Microsoft Teams call. So uh, I think that will benefit us and, and hopefully it will pay dividends uh, on, on all three uh, nights of the draft. Matt, we enjoy catching up with you as always. I just had uh, one final one from me. How unique is this, the 21 selections over two years? Like you just talked about the flexibility. You can go up. You can use some of those picks if you want to. You could actually move back and acquire more picks, but just not just the 21 picks, but where they're at. The two first-rounders this year, the two first-rounders in 2022, the two second-rounders in 2022. It's not just the accumulation of selections. It's where they are. You know, I think it's the most exciting part of being part of the New York Jets scouting staff, and I emphasize this a number of times during the regular season is that while on the surface we're struggling, we're having a, you know, a really difficult season, but guys, we have a chance 
to truly make an impact on this football team. And, you know, I've got friends that are with other clubs and other teams that, you know, they virtually have, you know, a handful of draft picks. They have no money to spend in free agency, and we have all of those things. So, you know, as a scouting staff, uh, to have that carrot dangling out there in front of us that, hey, we can truly make a difference for this football team. It's exciting. It keeps our feet to the fire and our eyes on the prize, so to speak. And uh, I think that's, that's been, you know, a real motivation for all of us, uh, particularly on the player personnel mm -hmm. side, because, you know, we lived through a difficult season knowing that we were going to have a real opportunity to change this football team over the next couple of years. All right, well, moving this forward to the draft, free agency is, of course, behind us. But how do they play off of one another? Because I think the conception is, well, all right, the Jets added an edge. Uh, an edge. They added a couple receivers. They're good there. But that's, it doesn't feel like that's the case through the eyes of behind closed doors. Sure, it's, it's a balance between both. I, you're always looking for positions of need, but you're also looking for the op an opportunity to upgrade your roster. And that's where the, the teams that do it best have that delicate balance of adding players at positions of need who are also very high-end players. So we will always continue to look for that from, from both, those, you know, both those scopes. What stood out to you about the approach? Uh, from afar, it looked like it was disciplined, yet you were poised to strike and you were aggressive when you needed to be. Yeah, we entered with that mindset. We wanted to be aggressive on guys that we targeted. But once we got into the negotiation aspect, we had to stay disciplined in terms of what was our breaking point, where, where was the, the point of we would walk away you know, from a financial standpoint. So I, I think just like you say, EA, we've, we entered it with an aggressive initial approach and then stayed disciplined throughout the negotiation aspect. You know, Rex, being that this is the group's second draft together, you know, what differences have there been in the processes and the meetings leading up to where we are today? Has it been a more fluid operation, I guess, is what I'm really trying to ask. Yeah, the transition of we were virtual from March of uh, 2020 into to this season. Now, for the first time in 14 months, we've able to get the college scouts back into the facility. So being able to communicate face-to-face and feel guys body language and you know the the way they they speak about a player with con more conviction you, you feel it more in the moment in the room but the process itself has has stayed the course in terms of our evaluations despite a limited number of college games that you could go to uh, the lower number of all-star games and then the absence of the the combine as well what changes in the personnel meetings from the time you guys met in february to the time you guys just spent here in April putting those uh, final details together? Well, typically you get the medical information back after the combine, uh, but the way they've structured it this year, pushing the, the combine back, the, the medical information's a little bit, it's delayed compared to, to previous years. So we still attack free agency with the college staff and uh, the rest of the guys in-house and where we'll fill in where we need or where we see fit in terms of hitting the pro days and being able to see the most players that we can from an exposure standpoint. So it's been, it's been unique with that um, and the, the limited access that you can have with players of only five interviews that last an hour apiece. Generally speaking, how would you define a successful draft weekend? Adding a group of guys who are starters, sub-starters, developmental players, 
who are going to improve the, the competitiveness of our team in addition to improving the talent of our team. You know, I, I don't think you can measure it just after one season. I, I think we know more after year two and year three. So in year two or year three, if, if we're a playoff caliber team, it'll be because of the core of this, this group that we've added. Rex, how do you weigh that old adage of need versus best player available? And at what point uh, does it happen where you have a group of players and that's where need comes to play, where they're closely ranked together? Yeah, you have to balance it. Uh, it. It has to be. You can't, for instance, if you have a defensive tackle who's similarly rated to, to Quinnen Williams, you, you don't necessarily want to add that same type of guy what you already have on the roster. So it's, you know, some common sense just goes into it, but you balance it between the needs of your team and the overall talent. Well, you mentioned not really being able to evaluate draft classes until a couple of years down the road and the record of the team, well, how much of an opportunity lies ahead, not only with this draft, the 10 picks, but the next year's draft with 11 picks and four of which come in the first two rounds? Yeah, it's, it's huge for us. Uh, it's an opportunity, you know, typically within those first two or three rounds, you, you want those guys to either be starters or significant contributors as, you know, potential sub-starters like nickels or slot receivers, guys who have third down value. So with this year, with us having five picks in the first 86, and then you know, 10 total, and then next year with 11, uh, we feel like we've put ourselves in a good position to, to add to the, the youth of this roster uh, that's going to continue to push us forward. How much does this staff's experiences help them as you go ahead? I'm thinking about Joe Douglas. He's got three championship rings. Robert Sala was just part of a build in San Francisco that saw them appear in the Super Bowl. You have been here twice, but the last time in between, you were in Indianapolis, and you guys changed that roster to a playoff caliber, a caliber roster. So how do those experiences help this staff as they move ahead? Yeah, it's unique because none of us had worked together previously. So it's also it's good because we all have different experiences, and we've all had success, and we've all had – failures that uh, you know we've taken from from our previous organizations um, you know you, you can learn from your success and, and failure and you try and take those experiences and bring them here and and put them in together and how we want to build it how we want to structure not only the team but the players that we want to go after so having that background and those experiences is going to help us all individually kind of form and, and shape our our own model of what we want to build here. Rex, do you have like a draft routine of the Thursday day? Like, you, you know, maybe eat the same thing. Maybe it's a little a good luck charm. Maybe it's a tie. I don't know. Do you have a, any kind of routine or just every year is unique in its own way? It will just be a, a green tie is the only <laughs> u, unique thing that I do here for, for draft day. But uh, outside of that, trying to treat it like a typical day. Um, if we were just talking about that before here on the podcast is that I feel like you have to set a different wardrobe for each day. Thursday, that's when the suits come out. Friday, <laughs> collared shirt, and then Saturday you can go jeans and polo, right? <laughs> Some guys do. Yeah, you see a lot of guys, I, I know back to Jimmy Johnson and Andy Reid, seeing the Hawaiian shirts come out, but uh, you're not going to see this guy in, in one of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you look at it overall, big picture-wise, not just this draft, but the opportunity ahead? 21 picks, 
between 2021 and 2022, that gives you flexibility to do a lot of things. You can go up, you can go down, stockpile, trade for veterans. But where they are is very unique, too. You mentioned the five picks in the first 86, and then you go to 2022, you guys have two first-rounders and two second-rounders as well, 11 picks next spring. Yeah, it's, it's a huge opportunity for us. Um, like I said before, the, we're adding young players who we feel like can be starters in those positions. And so adding those guys through the draft at starting level value and hopefully some pro bowlers based out and infused in that group as well. So we're, we're looking forward to the challenge of it. What about the importance of day three, too? Uh, because I know everybody externally, they're thinking about number two, number 23, even the second rounders. But I think it gets lost in the shuffle, the importance of day three. From your perspective, you're the assistant GM. What does day three mean to you? Not only those five draft picks, but also you guys are going to get on the phones and try to get some unrestricted, uh, I mean, priority free agents in here. Sure, you're, you're building the depth of the team, and, and hopefully some of the guys that you identify have the, some starting-level traits that uh, they can develop and, and make to a sub-starter sub level or a starting level. Um, but, you know, the bulk of those guys are, are going to you know, bolster your special teams, um, or you can find a starting-level punter like we did last year in, in Braden Mann, and then you can add depth to the special teams and to the entire roster. But, uh, you know, we were – Guys did a really good job last year of identifying undrafted free agents who made our team and contributed to our team uh, with Lamar Jackson and Javelin Guidry. So, you know, hopefully we can go out and find some more guys like that. All right, great stuff from both of those guys. We really appreciate their time. Is there anything that stands out to you with what either of them said? Yeah, uh, Phil Savage said the great drafters, they have to be in the calm while the storm is around them because there's so much information coming at these guys and you have to predict what's going to come your way down the line. So it's not just staying cool in the moment, but it's also forecasting what's ahead and putting your team or your organization in the proper position on draft weekend. The Jets, yes, they'll be taking a quarterback most likely with the number two overall selection it's going to get a lot of attention but Joe Douglas has a lot of work ahead of him and so did this staff draft weekend with the 10 selections and Rex Hogan said it you're hoping you get starters with those first few picks Mm -hmm. extending into the third round then beyond that you're looking at guys who can come in give you some depth and help on special teams yeah I think that what Rex said, what you just referenced, is it's good to hear, right? Because I think some people are like, well, you know, this player, no. Like, he's not good. He's not a pro Bowl all-pro, and he was drafted on day three. It's like, well, maybe you're not expecting that. You're taking flyers on some people, developmental traits, and hopefully they become that. I mean, you know, but those are not common, right? Obviously, you hear about the later round picks that emerge to pro bowlers or even beyond that, but that's not common. Well, not initially, you know, like the Bryce Hall pick last year, we talked about the value at the time. And I think that he's going to be a fun guy to watch under Sala, under Jeff Albrecht, uh, what they're going to be doing in the defensive backfield, because those physical traits, you think about the 49ers and the cornerbacks, They've had over the years, the long limb guys, the physical players, 
Bryce Hall started a bunch of games for the Jets in his rookie season, but he could come on and, you know, really shine, I think, in his second professional season. The point there is they took Hall knowing he's not playing early on. He's not contributing early on, but there's an opportunity for him to be a starter for us in year one and then beyond. So uh, initially, yeah, those first couple rounds, you want starters. You're going to be filling needs, uh, filling holes, and I think that's how you break those close um, the clusters. clusters. Yeah, 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 right, the, the close clusters. But then those guys down the line, sometimes flyers, sometimes you just look at a guy and say he's going to be a reserve immediately and then he's going to contribute on special teams, and then ultimately I think he's got starter potential. Yeah, I think that I, I'm just interested to see what happens. Not only early in the draft, day one, but also just all rounds. And not just because we work for the Jets, but because, one, the draft is so interesting. I think that's what makes the draft fun. No one knows what's going to happen. And that's why I feel like the number two overall pick, not a lot of people talk about it because most people assume they know who the pick is going to be. I saw a couple of people on social media today saying, I'm sick of talking about the number two overall pick. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited about pick 23. Right, I mean, there are so many different options. We well, you're going to be them. you're going to be pumped Thursday night too because you're going to be talking about 34. I oh, mean, yeah. who's still on the board after day one, and and how is this staff going to, uh, you know, look at the board after night one and night two? Because um, on days two and three, they're going to be at the top. Mm-hmm. They're going to be at the top, so they're going to be looking at, well, hey, we got a lot of options. Yep. Yeah, I think it's going to be fascinating to see how it all breaks down in just a couple days but that's all we have for this episode of the official jets podcast the draft podcast presented by pepsi